thank you so much for checking out the podcast. So glad you're here. I'm really, really excited to be doing this. Really excited to hopefully have some really good conversation with everybody. And uh, let me just say right at, right at the beginning here, uh, don't forget that in the show notes of every episode, there's a link that you can click uh, to leave me a voicemail, a digital voicemail. And the whole point of this podcast, really the whole premise of the podcast is uh, I want to have uh, conversations with people. I want this to be a place where not only I have conversations with guests, um, but also where we can have some conversations between a uh, listener and, uh, and myself, and we can hopefully bring in multiple people. Um, and, uh, and so make sure that you hit that. would love to hear your guys' opinion, questions, challenge, nuancing, uh, any of that kind of stuff uh, on uh, the, the podcast. So we're starting out the podcast with a series that I'm calling Things That We Should All Stop Saying in Church. And these are things that common phrases uh, that you have probably heard growing up in church, if you've been in church your whole life. And I think we just need to at least reconsider them. Um, some of them, I think it's, we just need to reconsider, maybe get some better language. Some of the other ones we just need to destroy. We need to abandon. We need to just ditch somewhere and we need to stop saying them altogether. And I thought of start, start things out here. What I think is kind of fun Hopefully you think it's fun too. Um, but uh, the first thing that I think we should stop saying in church is this little phrase, we don't want church as usual. Now, a little context here. Uh, I was born and raised in a charismatic church. So for better or worse, these are my people. This is my tribe. And and to be honest, I'm thankful for that. They're still my tribe. They're still my people. That's, uh, that's what I would still say that I am, that I'm a charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical believer, and, and I'm, I'm happy for that. Um, if, if you're not familiar with that, I grew up, and just to give you a little bit of color, I, I grew up in the kind of church that prays for the sick and genuinely expects people to get healed, and, and honestly, sometimes sees it. Uh, it's the kind of church that's unreasonably loud and rowdy at times, to the point that we keep a box of earplugs stocked in the back of the sanctuary for people, uh, so if it's too loud, they can, they can go get some earplugs. Uh, it was the kind of church that values, I would say, passion and spiritual hunger really more than anything else. Um, we're the kind of we're the kind of church that prayed out loud, um, so loud, and this would happen to me actually on a fairly regular basis. So loud that you begin to sweat and perspire, and that you would actually lose your voice uh, on Sunday morning church or at the midweek prayer meeting or something like that. Uh, we would pray in tongues almost every corporate gathering. We either pray or sing in tongues, probably just about every corporate gathering. It's the kind of like shout you down type of church where the, the pastor's up there preaching, and I would actually always appreciate this when I was preaching, but you know, shouts of amen and preach it, pastor, are falling like rain, and they're, they're thundering like, uh, the, the claps are thundering like a, like a storm, and you just start to feel that mojo going, you start to feel that, that juice, that energy flowing in the room, and I say all of that because that's the, the context in which uh, I not only grew up, it's still the context that I, that I live in. And so that's the, the, the worldview, so to speak, the church worldview, if I can say it that way, that I, I grew up with. And for all the good that the charismatic movement has done in general for me, and it, it has done a tremendous amount, um, part of the aim of this podcast and why I actually purposefully wanted to start with this series of, I think we'll have probably about six episodes or so on this series, 
is for all the good that is done. It's it's also I'm starting to discover. Uh, I think misformed me in certain ways, and that's that every tree grows with at least a little bit of crookedness. Every lean, every limb has a little bit of bend to it. And the charismatic church, Pentecostal churches, is no different. Now, like I said, it offered has offered me wonderful things that I'm eternally grateful for. It offered me a praying faith, a singing faith, where we every Sunday we sing to the top of our lungs with complete abandon, with passion, and I'm so grateful for that kind of upbringing. Um, it offered me a kind of faith that is pregnant with expectation every time we show up. And growing up, we expected God to show up, and I'm using air quotes there, that we expected God every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night for youth group, we expected the Spirit to come. And this expectation, this knowing, this kind of anticipation was really, in many ways, the core tenant of the charismatic and is, I think, the the core tenant of the charismatic corporate gathering, that we gather to meet with God, to a common phrase you'll hear, word you'll phrase, word you'll hear in the charismatic church is is encounter. We've come to encounter God. And this confident expectation, I don't think is wrong in per se, but I do think that the language that we use to talk about it is far too narrow and therefore riddled with problems. And that's a little bit what I want this first episode to be about. And it wasn't until a few years ago when I was around 30 that I started to really see this for myself, see the narrowness and the way that I would talk about things, the way that I thought about things. Uh, when I started reading and listening to people from from kind of other streams and just new light shining on my own mind and my own language and the, my own environment began for me a process of re-examining some of this. Now, if you've ever been to a charismatic service or a conference or one of those churches that's unreasonably loud at times and everybody's praying in tongues, you know the kind, you've likely heard the phrase, and it's usually enthusiastically prayed at the beginning of the service or during an emotionally heightened moment of worship, and the phrase is this, God, we don't want church as usual, right? That's the plea. That's the cry. That's the desire. And this church as usual is always in in this phrase is set up against the desire of the congregation for something more spirit-filled, powerful, usually spontaneous. And I think we need to stop saying and praying we don't want church as usual today. Even though I, I do understand the sentiment behind it, I think it's actually a good sentiment. I never want to quench the passion or the desire of the Spirit's work in, in anybody. And I think that sincere desire largely is what undergirds that phrase. So I don't want to challenge that at all. I mean, Paul tells us, don't quench the Spirit. So I, I don't want to do that. But just because we don't want to quench the Spirit doesn't mean we can't be careful and thoughtful with the language that we use about the work of the Spirit in our midst. And I think this phrase, we don't want church as usual, that there are some usually unsaid and unrecognized consequences to exclaiming such a mantra with such repetition and holding it as kind of the unifying force of the community. For sure, I think of the corporate gathering. 
again, I, I don't think the underlying emotion or desire is necessarily wrong, although we also, I think, need to recognize that our desires in and of themselves are often misformed and often misshaped and often lead us astray, and we don't even realize that we're often deceived by our own desires. So just because we think we have a sincere desire for something doesn't mean that that desire is actually sincere. But again, I think, I think that phrase, we don't want church as usual, is far too narrow, and, and I think we need to therefore stop saying it. So I, I want to give three reasons why I think we need to stop saying this. First, the phrase, we don't want church as usual, it strips the, the, the word usual of any value by clearly insinuating that the normal is bad, that the normal is unwanted. That phrase openly declares that a service which fails to provide something new, something unplanned, something unique, such as a spontaneous song or an exponential or a exceptionally moving moment or miracles or healing or something of that kind of sort, that anything that doesn't provide something like that, what we're essentially saying is that that's a waste of time, that the usual is a waste of time. And the usual is often just insider code for a service that a traditional denomination would have on an average Sunday. If, and I, I think some, some people in the charismatic church actually will say that. I've, I've heard that before. Most I don't think are quite that bold, but I don't know how you get around that point. I don't know how you sidestep them. We'll talk more about that here in a second. I don't think that you have any other, any other option left, we'll put it that way. That when the Spirit's presence and work in the Sunday gathering is reduced to such a simple bifurcation as the unwanted usual and the desired unusual, we're left with no option but to say that those branches of the church that do church as usual that they are in and of themselves undesirable because we've already said that the usual is undesirable. We don't want it. And so any tradition that looks like that in their normal practice, in their normal gathering, they too then become undesirable. And, and so this phrase unknowingly and, and kind of beneath the surface, it, it breeds this kind of superiority from rejecting the church in all of its normal quote-unquote functions it's normal ways and you do hear this said a little bit more explicitly at times with phrases like that that church is dead they aren't spirit-filled you know and that's always said in context of we are spirit-filled by which we just mean we pray in tongues usually and we're louder if we're if we're honest or we'll, you'll you know a church will get branded as oh, that's just dead religion okay now i, I grew up in South Central Minnesota, so this Catholic and Lutheran Central, and I heard this stuff growing up. Not a ton, to be honest, but it was it was in the air. I don't know where I maybe necessarily got it, but it was it was there somewhere. Because by the time I was in college, that that was a very clear sentiment that I had, and I was very aware of that sentiment at that point that they were dead, that they did the quote-unquote normal church, and that that wasn't wanted. And so there was always this us versus them, and them, the they, the other people. 
we didn't want what, what they had. Well, the phrase, we don't want church as usual, it equates, what, what, the problem I think it, it does is it equates the normal with the common and the unwanted. And, and I want to draw a distinction between the normal and the common. The, the common is the unwanted. It's the knickknack at a gas station or some off-brand toy displayed at the shelf of Walmart, that there's nothing special about it. That's what common is. But normal and common, I don't think, are the same thing. Listen, our lives, all of us, our, our lives, moment by moment, day by day, experience by experience, are, are like a forest of trees that all mostly look the same. They mostly look alike, if we're honest. If you stand at, a, at, at enough of a distance, it just looks like a, a repetition of the same looking tree, meaning our lives are normal. And so to seek to rid our spirituality of normal, be as if the normal is unwanted, is, to continue the metaphor, to deforest our own experience. It's to make our own life a barren wasteland. But I don't think we can be fooled because our lives, like any forest, if you look close enough, is actually teeming with life beneath that canopy of quote-unquote normal-looking trees. The normal-looking branches are filled with uncommon things. The, the canopy, the floor, the, the whole ecosystem underneath the, quote, normal-looking trees, the normal-looking forest, there's uncommon things. And I think this distinction between the common and the normal that I'm trying to make, hopefully articulating well, I think it, this is what lays at the heart of the incarnation of Christ, that for 30 years... We, Jesus lived a normal life, but he was anything but common. He lived a normal life, played normal games, lived in a normal home, had normal siblings, worked a normal job, went to normal festivals, celebrated normal holidays, and yet throughout it, he was the most uncommon person ever to have existed. He was holy. So, in the incarnation, we see there is not a difference. There is no tension. There is no battle. There is no um, clashing of holy and normal. There is of holy and common. Something can't be common and holy, but something can be, in the way that I'm thinking about it here now, normal and holy, because Christ in his flesh, in his life, was completely normal and holy. In fact, he was so normal that we actually thought that he was normal. I mean, think about this, that Jesus lived such a normal life that when he tried to make the radical claims that he did, one of the charges against him was, we know who you are. We know what family you came from, meaning you're just a normal dude. What are you talking about? He was so normal. God in the flesh was so normal looking that we actually thought that he was normal because he was because normal and holy are not at odds with each other. The holiness of normality, I think, is also clearly seen in the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. That when Christ wants to remind us of his life and his work, he does so with the basic elements of life, with bread and wine. 
But the bread and wine are not just reminders, like some refrigerator magnet that's supposed to jog our memory of something. No, no, no. The bread and the wine, we're told, are his body. Now, I don't want to get into all the views of, of you know, the, the Eucharist, but it, it's clearly not just a reminder. It's not a refrigerator magnet. They're like, ah, oh, when you come together, do this, look at it, kind of remember, jog your memory. No, no, no. They're, He says that this is my body, this is my blood, that when you take these normal elements of the world and you eat them by faith, you are receiving the very grace and truth of God that comes only by the word of God made flesh in Christ Jesus. That the the Eucharist, I think, boldly tells us that the life of God and the spirit of Christ are woven into the very nature of normal life. That bread and wine and all those who partake of them are normal, but they are not common. They are holy. And so when we say we don't want church as usual, we don't want normal church, it blinds us to the life and the work of the Spirit in the normal, and it actually creates a kind of class distinction, class system, caste system, if you will, within the church. And the normal are those that are unwanted, and the, the unusual is what's wanted. But what we, we, so we disregard our brother and sister, and we say that we don't want them, and at the same time we deceive ourselves, and we, we fail to see that God is in our normal, that he's not separate from it. Second, and this is a logical conclusion of, of the first, it actually propagates, which is, this is unusual for charismatic church, if you think about it, because we were therefore encounter. But by this logic, it, the we don't want church's normal framework actually propagates the idea that God doesn't move that much. He's actually not that present. He's actually not that involved. And if we can see, again, the narrowness and the danger of the first point, again, I think this is a given that once we place the life and the activity of the Spirit within the, the black and white framework of church as usual on one side, which is unwanted and a waste of time, and the unusual, which is desired because it means that the Spirit actually showed up, right? In, in, in my tradition, spontaneity is the sign that the Spirit showed up, that when things go different than what they were planned, that's the sign that, that the Spirit showed up. Now, there's a an openness that that creates in the charismatic church that I think is really beautiful and healthy. But again, I think for reasons that I'm talking about now, it creates all kinds of problems. But do we see what's happened here when we operate under that framework? That in the charismatic church's zeal, and and I'm I'm purposely and pointedly critiquing, I think, my own tradition here, because I think this is where we see it the most. It's probably in other places too, but I think this is where we see it the most. That in the charismatic church's zeal and desire to be near to God, that we've actually created a view of God that puts him far off at the distance because most of our church services are normal. Most of our church services look the same every week, right? Sundays, we sing three or four songs. We transition. We take an offering. We have a 40-minute sermon and possibly an altar call at the end depending on how wild and crazy we want to get. You throw little tongues in there and some smoke and lights and you have charismatic church. 
But if we're just brutally honest, most Sunday mornings look the same. But when we say we don't want church as usual, we're, we're actually telling people that God doesn't show up most of the time because most Sunday services, they do look normal. It, normal to us, our normal, but it is, it's normal. It's, this, it's the same thing most weeks. Now you, again, you can hear this same thing in some of the other phrases that you'll hear in prayers or songs, things like that. We're, we're asking God to come, to break in, to show up, to move, all, all these things. And all these phrases and, and words accentuate the idea that God is distant from us, right? The starting point of the idea of, of God breaking in, for example, is that he's over there and we're here and he needs to come. And the simple equation in most of, in my tradition, and I think in, in most evangelical traditions, is that the more we cry out, the hungrier we get, that God will come. Right? That, and, and, and our proof text for this is, is James, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And so the idea is the hungrier you get, the, the quicker he'll come. Cry out louder and he'll show up even more. Now it was normal for me growing up and, and I mean really my entire life to have the post-service conversation where we rate everything and we would... We would rate a good service by saying, God really showed up today. Man, the spirit broke out today. And again, I, listen, I, I get what we're trying to say. What I'm questioning here is, is this the best way to say it? Right? We'll talk about the atmosphere being thick or charged or something like that. But again, all of this is, it's starting from the premise that God is actually distant and needs to come close to us. And it's upon us to make him come, to get him to come. But the gospel says the exact opposite. The gospel says that God is not distant at all, that when we gather, we do so as the very body of Christ. Again, this is not just some mystical theological treatise or idea. No, no, we are the enfleshed body of Christ here and now, that we are one with him, that we are the scripture tells us baptized into one spirit, under one head, part of one family, unified as one body, filled with one spirit, that when the church gathers in his name, that God's spirit is always present and always at work. And a common way that this tension is often dealt with in Pentecostal charismatic circles is to distinguish between the, the usual presence of God and the, the quote-unquote manifest presence of God. And while this, this does address some of the problem, because you do see that in Scripture where God, in moments, I'm thinking of like Solomon's temple, where the, the, the quote manifest presence of God just shows up and you know people fall over. The problem with just kind of relying heavily on that distinction and kind of holding that as your ace up the sleeve is that we're actually not good at recognizing that all of the time. So take, for example, Luke 24, Jesus is the resurrected Jesus is actually walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the, the point of the story is to shock us that these two men were walking with the resurrected Christ and didn't know it. You can't get to be more of a manifest presence than the resurrected Jesus walking next to you, talking about the scriptures and how they testify of him, and yet they did not recognize it. So we're, the point is we're not always good at recognizing and even understanding when God's presence is among us. So we can't just say, well, yeah, he's here 
in some theological sense, but what we're really after is the manifest presence. No, no, we're, we're not good at even recognizing the manifest presence when it does show up. And it's just not always that clear. But those two disciples and, and really most of the gospel, they continue to attest to that point. Now, and at the end of Luke 24, Jesus eats and drinks with those two disciples. But when he breaks the bread, he vanishes from their sight. And it's only, surprisingly, I love this story, but it's only in his vanishing that the disciples realize that it was Jesus to begin with. But the question is, why does he vanish? And the key, and I'm, I'm borrowing from a, an Orthodox John Bear, is to recognize when Jesus vanishes, that he vanishes during the breaking of the bread, which we know from the gospel symbolizes his body. Right? It's a, it's a reenactment almost of the Last Supper. So he breaks the bread of his body, he gives it to his disciples, and then he vanishes. And the point here, and again, pulling from John Bear, is that we have, he, he hands over the bread to the disciples and then vanishes primarily because they are his body. They are his enfleshment now on the earth and so that we can see Christ in each other's faces. That in a very real sense, we are Christ's manifest presence to each other. So how does God break in? How does he manifest his presence? It's in and through the church. It's through the people of God. Those who partake of his body through the broken bread and through the poured out wine that we have actually become his body to one another and to the world in a manifest way. That Christ is manifestly present when we gather simply because we're gathered together and we're opening those same scriptures and we're eating that same bread and we're drinking that same wine and we're giving that same witness to the world. We're reliving Luke 24 every Sunday. And we all come in on some road and that road is then transformed by by Christ. So secondly, we need to stop saying we don't want church as usual because it actually makes God distant from us. And it says that he actually isn't at work most of the time and that it's incumbent upon us to get him near to us. And thirdly, and again, I think this is just a logical conclusion, that this phrase places, I think, a really unbearable burden upon our own emotions our own spiritual life and upon the church as a whole, that if we need unusual church because that means that the spirit is present and active and that church is, then, then church as usual, the normal Sunday gathering, actually becomes a burden and it eventually becomes a source of disillusionment and guilt and people begin to wonder why isn't God showing up? Well, he is showing up. You just don't have eyes to see. You are like those two on the road to Emmaus who your eyes need to be open to, to realize that Christ is with you the whole time and that now one of the primary ways he's with you is in the face of your brother. Now, I, I found this to be true, if I'm honest, in my own life, that the constant mandatory, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on it here a little bit, but the, the constant need and search for quote-unquote revival or the move of the Spirit, which equate to church not as usual, they simply become exhausting when most weeks are completely normal. And when churches hold this desire, sincere as it is 
as it may be, to have unusual church. It forces them to constantly be doing things in order to get God to show up. What do we need to do to, 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 what do we need to do different? Do we need to worship more, sing different songs, change the lighting, make a better atmosphere, pray in tongues more, right? And this paradigm morphs the church into a kind of withdrawing addict. And I mean that in the negative sense, that's willing to do anything to get another experience, another experiential high. But as I mentioned earlier, our, our desires for God, they can themselves be corrupt. And this is, I think, where this leads us is, is we actually become self-serving. We actually become self-centered that we show up for our own gratification and God simply becomes the means to that. He, he simply becomes, becomes the way in which we get that high. And this need for the unusual church where God breaks in and does something that we didn't expect or didn't see coming, over the time, that, that expectation, I think, grinds people's souls down with disappointment. Now, I, I think things like revival, whatever is meant by that, that's beyond the scope of this episode, I, they, they eventually become the proverbial carrot on the stick that's always just out of reach. It's always on the brink of experiencing something that's always one season away. Now, I don't want to say that revival is a hoax or unneeded or unwanted or anything of the sort. No, 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 not at all. Again, remember, I'm a lifelong card-carrying charismatic Pentecostal. Both scripture and history demand that we pray in faith for such things. But my fear is that the way that we talk about those things are shallow and reductionistic that we need to find better ways to talk about them because the way that we talk about them now and this phrase being an, an easy example of it, what it does is it turns the real thing into a, a, caricature, a caricature, a cartoon of itself. And when we undergird our gatherings with the we don't want church as usual paradigm, we are unknowingly placing sandbags on people's back one Sunday at a time. And if you just give it a few years, a decade, many people, probably not all, but many people will grow tired and weary of that promise that's always given but never seems to come. And this is when you start to hear, and I think this is why you start to hear people who are in the charismatic movement and then leave, why they start to throw out charges like hype or emotionalism to describe the services. This, I think this is actually what they're feeling. They're pointing to, I think, an inner exhaustion from always feeling like they needed to hunger for a distant God in order for him to show up because the worst thing that could happen, the biggest waste of time that they could partake in is showing up to a normal Sunday morning. And that burden, that grind is just unsustainable for most people after years of mostly normal services that don't seem to match the grandiose rhetoric. Now, some will say, that we just need to keep believing, keep praying, keep being in faith. And while, again, those things are true, it brings us right back to the same faulty framework that God is distant, that he's not with us right now, and we need to keep pressing in until he becomes closer to us. Again, what we need, I think, is the same experience of those disciples on the road to Emmaus. We need our eyes open to see that Christ is nearer to us than we are even to ourselves. So, I think we need to just stop saying, God, we don't want church as usual. And we need to instead ask God to open our eyes to the nearness of his presence so that we can perceive all that he is already doing. 
that we should instead come together as the body of Christ, acknowledging that he is more present to us than we are to ourselves, that he's at work in us way, in ways that we could not even dare to imagine, and at work even in an ugly world in scandalously good ways, ways that are cruciform in type, they look like the cross, and that one day, like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we will be able to look back on our own journey and realize all of the ways that he was close to us. And we need to stop saying this phrase so that we can actually believe in a God who is near to us and not distant, so that we can be freed from all of our subconscious and yet insidious forms of elitism and pride, and so that we can gather together with confident expectation, not that God will show up, but that he's already there waiting for us. And so that's why I think we need to stop saying we don't want church as usual. I would love to hear what you have to say. I would love to get some feedback. I'd love to continue the conversation. So go ahead and click that link in the the, uh, show notes below. Leave me a voicemail. Give me critiques and questions and whatever. And again, uh, if there's something I think worthwhile, we'll throw it into a future episode and we will continue this conversation. So thank you so much for checking out the podcast. If you like it, uh, make sure that you are subscribed. Uh, give us a, give me a rating on, on iTunes or whatever platform that you use. Share it with your friends. It just helps people kind of find out about it. And in our next episode, we will look at another phrase that I think we should all just stop saying. 